Welcome to Cornerstone, a podcast by Rebuild Fellowship. On today's episode, Pastor KJ returns to deliver the next message in our Bear Witness series. This message is titled Characteristics of a Praying and Obeying Church. The primary text for this message can be found in Acts chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Acts chapter 6 right now as we join in with Pastor KJ. You know, at the start of 2022, Pastor Chuck introduced uh, our sermon series for the year from the book of Acts entitled Bear Witness. Well, today we're going to jump back into the series and pick up in chapter 6 where we left off. If you remember our last sermon in the series, Pastor Chuck taught us from Acts 5 on Ananias and Sapphira. He reminded us that obedience establishes purity within the faith community. Obedience establishes purity within the faith community. From the beginning, Pastor Chuck has said that his desire is that Rebuild Fellowship would be a praying and obeying church. Well, we have kind of fallen into this rhythm of alternating weekly from a a message or a day focused on praying to a message focused on obeying. And last week, uh, as you remember, our focus was on prayer. Um, And this week, we're going to jump back in now to a message on um, obedience uh, and looking at a positive example of obedience, uh, not just in an individual, but in the church. This morning, we're going to look at um, the story of Stephen, which is found in Acts chapter 6, 7, and part of chapter 8. And we're not going to read all of those verses. Um, uh, Rather, uh, we're going to kind of jump in and out, um, and you'll be able to follow along with me. But if you want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts 6, um, I'm going to give you a quick recap of the book of Acts, and then an overview of chapters 6 through 8. So if you remember the story of the book of Acts, uh, it's the follow-up story to Luke's account of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. At the end of Luke, Jesus was resurrected from the dead. His resurrection signaled that God's kingdom was breaking through in a new way and that the Holy Spirit would now be present in God's people. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit would empower them to represent God's kingdom and bring about renewal on the earth as a sign of God's coming kingdom. Throughout the book of Acts, the religious and political leaders are confronted by Jesus' disciples who are declaring that God is king and Jesus is Lord and no one else is. Not Caesar, not any other kings, and not high priests. No one. So at the end of Luke, um, you may remember that Jesus' disciples had been hiding out. They'd been cowering in fear. Then we get to the start of Acts and they are re-engaged, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And they've been gathering together around prayer, the apostles' teaching, and deep community, walking in obedience and sharing everything they had with one another. Then, in chapter 5, we had the first report of sin in the church with Ananias and Sapphira. And we saw how seriously God and the church took sin and disobedience. And now today, in chapter 6, we have the first recorded multi-ethnic conflict in the church. Let me tell you a little bit about this conflict. The Hellenists were Greek-speaking Jewish Christians from the diaspora. The the diaspora simply means those that are scattered outside of Palestine as a result of persecution and exile. And here we learn that they are speaking up, the Hellenists were speaking up about another ethnic group, the Hebrews, who were neglecting the Hellenists' widows in the regular distribution of food. The Hebrews were native Palestinians who would have been Jewish Christians and spoke Aramaic. 
The apostles realize that something needs to be done, so they appoint seven leaders who are tasked with making sure that everyone is getting what they need. And I love this part of the story because I believe it is a picture of biblical justice, the shalom or peace that God's kingdom will one day fully restore on earth that we can experience now in part, even though his kingdom will not fully be established until he returns. We talked a little bit about this last week when we were looking at Jeremiah 29 and understanding that God's desire is for there to be shalom or peace for his people and for the communities where he puts us. So here, back to our story, we meet a man named Stephen, whose story is the focus of almost all of the rest of these verses in chapter 6, 7, and the first part of 8. You may have heard of him referred to as Stephen the Martyr. We first meet him as one of the seven leaders that the people chose to address the tension between the Hellenists and the Hebrews by fairly serving the needs of the widows and marginalized. In addition to serving in this way, chapter 6, verse 8 says that Stephen was also doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now these signs and wonders were demonstrations of how God's kingdom was breaking into the earth. They were intended to communicate the reality of God's present and coming kingdom and to add weight to the proclamation of the good news of his kingdom. Some of the non-converted Greek-speaking Jews from the diaspora didn't like what Stephen was doing. So they brought false charges against him to the high priest and the Jewish council. So Stephen famously responds by preaching a sermon, and a very lengthy sermon, which he concludes by confronting the Jews with their history of killing the prophets, and now more recently, Jesus the Messiah, which, as you can guess, angered the Jews, who take Stephen outside the city and stone him to death. This is why Stephen is referred to as the first martyr. So quick aside here, quick note. Uh, the Greek word for witness is martis, which is obviously where we get the English word martyr. So a martyr is a witness, and Stephen is the ultimate witness. So back to our story. While this murder of Stephen is taking place, chapter 7, verses 58, introduces another man whom many of us are very familiar with, a man named Saul, who will soon become Paul the Apostle, the author of much of the New Testament. But here in chapter 8, we learn that Saul the persecutor approved of Stephen's execution. We're told that a great persecution began that day against the church out of the stoning of Stephen. So the church scatters. And we're told about yet another significant figure, Philip, who was one of the other seven selected with Stephen to serve the widows. We're told that the church scatters to Samaria and Judea. Then later in Acts, not in our portion, but later, we read the miraculous story of the salvation of Saul, who, as the Apostle Paul, goes on missionary journeys all over and takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. If you remember back when this series started in Acts 1.8, Jesus said that his disciples would, to go, would go into all the world and be his martis, be his witnesses. We will see in the coming weeks how the rest of the story in Acts picks up the pace pretty dramatically and showcases the progress of God's kingdom, all as a result of Jesus' disciples' obedience to the Spirit of God and the Word of God. So as I was studying for this message... I was tempted to focus primarily on Stephen and his remarkable witness and martyrdom. 
obviously since the most of the story is about him. But I kept coming back to the remarkable characteristics that I was seeing in the young New Testament church. I think there's a lot that we can learn from Stephen, and I hope that we will, but I don't want to miss that Stephen was part of a culture and context that actively practiced praying and obeying in everything, which would have shaped him and prepared him and equipped him. So whether we are conscious of it or not, we are products of our environments. That doesn't condemn us, nor does it guarantee a specific outcome. It just, needs, it just means that we need to be aware of the ways that our environment affects us. And then we need to choose our environments carefully and prayerfully. I want to highlight this morning several things that I see in this ecosystem that I believe helped Stephen to develop into the radical witness that catalyzed the church. <clears throat> so one thing that stands out to me throughout the book of Acts, as well as the rest of the New Testament and throughout church history, is how the church continued to grow despite suffering and persecution from outside the church and sin and conflict from inside the church. What I take from these examples is that churches ought to prioritize those same things that marked the early church. So that's what I want us to dig into today. Churches don't need to be perfect, and we don't need to expect them to be. But let me, let me say that that's not an excuse for churches to not be perfect. It's just helping us to understand and, and reset our expectation. Churches shouldn't be unhealthy or unloving or self-righteous or abusive. But the fact that the early church dealt with sin and conflict ought to remind us that there are godly, healthy ways to deal with sin, brokenness, failure, mistakes, and bad leadership. When churches love and serve each other and the community around them and work for unity through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, then the conditions are right for transformation to take place. Let me say that again because this is kind of the key here. When churches love and serve each other and the community around them and work for unity through the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, then the conditions are right for transformation to take place. We must be careful not to fall into thinking that the church can only thrive in optimal circumstances where the government and society are on our side, or our programs, performances, and facilities are top class, or even that if we just know the right things or say the right things, we can accomplish what God wants. Throughout history, the church has flourished in the most intense and harsh circumstances, and under oppressive and antagonistic governments, often with very few resources. It is our unity and love for God and others, not wealth or power or ease of circumstances, that are the primary ingredients the Holy Spirit uses to bring transformation and reconciliation to the world. So here's our cornerstone thought. Praying and obeying churches produce radical witnesses who proclaim and demonstrate God's coming kingdom for the joy and good of others. So I want to take the rest of our time to look at 12 characteristics that we see in the young New Testament church from this section of Acts. This is not intended to be an exhaustive list of everything uh, that a praying and obeying church does, 
But these are the things that I see here in this text. So there's 12 of them, 12 characteristics, which means we're going to go pretty fast. Um, I'm going to identify the characteristic. I'll read the passage of, of Scripture from these sections in Acts 6, 7, and 8 that correlate or correspond to uh, this characteristic. Uh, and then just say a few things about it. But we're going to move uh, pretty fast here, so stay with me. So here's the 12 characteristics of a praying and obeying church. Number one, there's healthy conflict. There's freedom and confidence to disagree. Listen to this from chapter 6 and verse 1. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. We all know this, that we are more likely to bring up disagreements, disappointments, or pain when we believe what, what when we believe that we will be heard and that what we say will be met with genuine concern. <clears throat> the early New Testament church seemed to have created an environment where it was safe to bring up grievances because they had confidence in the health of their relationships and the unity that they were experiencing and the love that they had for one another. Second characteristic, there's humble leadership. Leadership, in this case, is inclusive and transparent. Verse 2 of chapter 6, right after the complaint has been brought to them, uh, to the, the leaders. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. The apostles gathered all the people around and explained the complaint and the problem and offered a solution that the people would have to affirm and then the people would actually get to choose the seven people to be able to, to take care of this problem. And they would be participating in all of it. There is healthy, mutual trust, free from manipulation and coercion. So humble leadership also leads to unity. Verse 5 of chapter 6. And what they said, what the apostles said, pleased the whole gathering of disciples. As a result of the leader's humility and owning their part in the problem, they were, able, they were all able to walk away with a solution that everyone bought into, which helped them to maintain unity. All right, here's our third characteristic. Characteristic of a praying and obeying church. Mission includes justice and evangelism. Word and deed. I use that phrase a lot. Mission ought to be both word and deed. <clears throat> Listen to several of these verses. <clears throat> Excuse me. Chapter 6. Uh, verses 1 and 2. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, which means people were being saved, and salvation comes through the proclamation of God's word, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. This is a way that the early church was serving the needs of the vulnerable around them. Then in chapter 8, verses 1 through 7, this is talking about um, uh, Philip. Uh, actually, I'm going I'm to read verses 4 through 7. Um, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Do you hear what happened there? Philip went down to proclaim Jesus and demonstrate the power of God's, king, of God's spirit. 
And it says in verse 6 that when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. We'll get to their response a little bit later. But we see both word and deed. So remember, our, our characteristic is mission that includes justice and evangelism, word and deed. Biblical justice is primarily about restoration. And both of these passages, in chapter 6 and chapter 8, point out that restoration and proclamation were both happening. This is the church's mission, proclaiming and demonstrating the good news of God's coming kingdom that is now breaking through. Mission that includes justice and evangelism um, is also holistic and avoids false dichotomies. False dichotomies like which one is more important? Like if you had to choose proclamation or demonstration, and that, that's, Scripture never puts us in that position to have to choose. It's a false dichotomy. And too many people get caught up with trying to answer that question. What Scripture lays out for us are disciples who do both. But it's also too important to acknowledge that we have limitations and that we should share responsibilities. Like the response that the apostles give is that we can't continue to serve all the needs. And so we need some help. So we can devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The apostles recognized that the needs were so great that it was impossible for them to do everything well. But it is not consistent with scripture for us to assume that this meant that they no longer had anything to do with serving the poor. And we know this because this is the same group of guys who in Galatians 2.10 tell Paul and Barnabas that they should continue going about their missionary journeys, planning churches, doing all the things that they're doing, and to remember the poor. And Paul says that's the very thing that they were eager to do. Even in Stephen, we see that he was committed to both serving the widows and proclaiming the gospel. He is brought before these false charges, before the council, because of what he was doing to serve. And when he gets in front of them, then he proclaims the good news of Jesus. And that's where we'll stop and pause for today. Thank you for taking your time with us today. If you would like to learn more about our church or have us pray for you in any way, you can find us at www.rebuildchurch.com. That is www.rebuildchurch.com. Our church meets in Durham, North Carolina, and if you're looking for a church to attend, we'd love to have you join us. We meet weekly at 10 a.m. on Sunday, and you can find more details about what to expect and where we are on our website. You can also find our full services on our YouTube channel. Please join us for our next episode as Pastor KJ delivers the final portion of his message.